Well, good afternoon. Good afternoon. That was um, that was a pretty weak good afternoon. <laughs> good afternoon. Good afternoon. All right. Usually that's Pastor Michael's job, but I'll do it today. Um, so glad you've chosen to worship with us here uh, today. Will you join me as I begin this time in prayer? Lord Jesus, we lift up our praise and our worship to you because you only deserve it. Thank you for the eternal, true, lasting hope that is found in you. Thank you for the work of salvation, moving us from death to life. Thank you that your mercies are new every morning. Help us now as we look at your word, your truth. Help us to be encouraged and refreshed from these promises. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, last week, Pastor Michael introduced us to 1 Peter, a letter that Peter wrote to first century believers who were scattered throughout five Roman provinces. You might recall that these Christians were suffering and persecuted because of their faith in Christ. Peter wrote this letter to encourage them in the midst of their suffering. If you haven't already, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 1 in your Bible. You might, might remember from last week that Peter begins this letter by reminding his readers of their identity as Christians. Peter greets his readers in verse 1 as God's elect. They had been chosen by God. If you are here today and you have put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, this truth applies to you as well. You also are chosen by God. Knowing and believing this truth is foundational to faithfully face into hardship and suffering. This is a reason for hope, which is a theme of our passage today. Follow along as I read verses 3 to 5 of 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter has not given any instructions in the first five verses of his letter. Instead, he is building a foundation for his readers of eternal truths that do not change even when times get tough. It is these truths to which believers are to cling when faced with persecution and suffering. Only after this foundation is set will Peter transition to giving instruction. The foundation is based on who God is, what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. And I imagine that as Peter was thinking about how to describe these truths, he was overcome 
with awestruck praise of God to the point he burst into worship and wrote, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I admit I found this expression, blessed be God, a little confusing. As if somehow I can give God a blessing. I learned this week that in the New Testament, at least two different Greek words get translated to our English word blessed. One describes the blessings we receive from God. This is the Greek word we find in Matthew chapter 5, for example, when Jesus gives the Beatitudes. But Peter uses a different Greek word here in verse 3. This Greek word means worthy of praise. It is found only eight times in the New Testament. In each instance, it is used only of God. So verse 3 is an expression of worship to God, who alone is worthy of our praise. Peter's response to core doctrine of the Christian faith is uncontainable worship. I hope these three verses we look at today have the same effect on you as you are reminded of God's work in your life, that you burst into worship to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We can summarize the message today like this. Live expectant, hope-filled, worshipful lives. Live expectant, hope-filled, worshipful lives. I know how strong the temptation is to let our circumstances determine our outlook or define who we are. These verses, as I've studied them the last few weeks, have been a refreshing reminder for me to fight that temptation by directing my thoughts and attention to who God is, what he has given me, and what he guarantees for me. One commentator I read listed 11 reasons in these verses to praise God. It reveals just how rich these three verses are. Now, not to worry you, I've talked myself out of an 11-point sermon. So there's plenty for you to study on your own this week. Today we're actually going to boil it down to three essential truths of the Christian faith. Three essential truths that drive us to live expectant, hope-filled, worshipful lives. No matter our circumstances in life, even in the face of persecution, I pray they encourage and embolden your faith just as Peter intended for his original readers. We find our first truth in verse 3. God caused us to be born again to a living hope. When you come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, that is a work of God. The term born again describes every Christian. It's not a modern term. It's a first century term dating back to Jesus when he met with Nicodemus recorded for us in John chapter 3. Nicodemus was a Jewish Pharisee who recognized that Jesus was no ordinary man and must be from God. He arranged to meet Jesus. And during that conversation, Jesus said to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John 3.3 
Scripture teaches that while we are all born physically alive, we are also all born spiritually dead. Earlier in the service, Drew, in that masterful voice that he has, uh, apparently, <laughs> um, read from Ephesians chapter 2. No, Drew, I love your voice. Where are you? It's great. It's great. Uh, I won't give it justice, but I won't do my shopping list either, so I won't bore you with that. Um, Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes, And you were dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We need a second birth, a spiritual birth, what Jesus described as being born again. Born again. I'd like to take a moment to consider this, this word picture, this analogy of being born again. Now, I know it's become popular among our pastors to ask for volunteers to come up. I'm just, maybe I'm uncomfortable with that, it's going to go wrong, or I just want to be different from them. But um, I'm going to ask all of you to participate in a poll here. So all I'm looking for is for you to raise your hand if you know at least one person that was physically born. One, it, it's just one person. There's a couple people not sure, but I, you can put your hands down. I know each one of you should have raised your hand. I can see you. You're, you're alive. You're breathing. Most of you are awake. Think, think about your own birth for a moment. Can you do that? I know it's a distant memory, but think about your own birth. What did you do to be born? What did you do? What part did you play? Sort of a, sort of a dumb question, isn't it? You, you had nothing to do with you being born. And that principle applies to your spiritual birth. If you are born again, that is a result of God's work in your life. And it is a result of God's great mercy. Do you see that in verse 3? According to God's great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Friends, if you need a reason to worship God today, then let the truth of God's mercy saturate your mind and your soul. Mercy implies that our salvation is undeserved and that we are completely helpless to help ourselves. Paul describes it like this in Ephesians chapter 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Peter opened his letter by reminding his readers they are God's chosen people. And he builds on that truth by reminding them of how God, in his great mercy, caused them to be born again. We don't deserve it, and we didn't cause it. It is a gift of God. This new birth our new life results in a living hope. Hope. The Greek word translated as hope infers a confident expectation of something good 
that results in our present joy. A confident expectation. It reminds me, it reminded me, I guess, today, because I just wrote this uh, this morning. It reminds me of that classic watching as a kid. I'm going to age myself now. Watching the classic USA-Russia hockey game in the 1980 Olympics. Maybe that rings a bell. I grew up in Minnesota. Minnesota. So naturally, I was excited about this young, upstart USA hockey team. In fact, I still have a poster of this team in my basement. When USA advanced to the semifinals, they were huge underdogs against the veteran Soviet team. The Soviets had won the previous four gold medals. Of course, I held out hope that USA would prevail, even though that didn't seem possible. Now, what's interesting about this is that the game was played at 5 p.m. Eastern Time in Lake Placid, New York. And ABC, who was televising the Olympics at the time, didn't think 5 p.m. Eastern was prime time. So they played a recorded version of this game later that evening, the one I watched. Now, we didn't have the Internet in 1980, but we did have radio. That's, it has an antenna, you know, and you turn dials. Um, so I knew the outcome of the game before I was able to watch it. And I trust, trust me, that did not diminish at all the excitement of watching the USA team overcome deficit after deficit until they triumphed in victory. But it certainly meant watching that game with a confident hope, not wishful thinking that my team would win. And wishful thinking is how we use the word hope today. Today we hope that an uncertain outcome will turn out the way we want it. That's not the hope of the New Testament. Biblical hope is having full assurance that God's plans and purposes for us are perfectly good and that our eternal future is secure. Hope is a central theme of this letter, and here Peter describes it as a living hope. If you look at the end of verse 3, you see that we have a living hope because we have a risen Savior. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is proof positive that our hope is alive because He is alive. Even death had no hold on Jesus. Likewise, nothing can stamp out our living hope, not persecution, not disease, or poverty, or discrimination, or a dead-end job, or a wayward child, or a strained marriage, or whatever hardship you face. What a contrast to where our culture looks for hope. Wealth, popularity, prestige, glamour, pleasure, autonomy, comfort. Sooner or later, each of these fail us. They eventually lead to disappointment or regret or both. Believers in Jesus Christ are promised a living hope that never dies. It begins with the saving grace and mercy of God and is proven in the resurrection of Jesus. This leads to a second truth from our passage today. God promises us an eternal inheritance. 
Our living hope is described as an inheritance. We see that in verse 4. So for kids here today who, who may not be familiar with this term inheritance, inheritance is a financial term. When someone dies, what, whatever they owned gets distributed to other people. That could be money or a house or, or a car. That is what is called an inheritance. Now most of the time when someone dies, their money goes to their spouse. So if, if I die today, Mrs. Erickson gets all my stuff. And I know that even in her grief, right, um, you'll be comforted to know that I've left you a, a lifetime supply of bungee cords. I have, <laughs> I have this problem. I'm, I don't know why I, 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 I have a problem with bungee cords. But <laughs> I stray from our passage. If a person dies and their spouse is no longer alive, then their stuff typically goes to their children. Not always. I might know Pastor Stephen needs bungee cords, so I bequeath him that collection. But generally, an inheritance is something of value that gets passed on from parent to child. Now back to our passage. Let's consider what Peter means when he writes about our inheritance. When you are born again, right? You are a child of God. John 1.12, 1 John 1, or 1 John 3.1. You are not only given new life, you are given a new identity, a new family. You are chosen by God and a child of God. As his child, you are promised an inheritance. And this inheritance surpasses any earthly inheritance. It is your heavenly reward, eternity, in the presence of your Savior and King. Paul writes, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life, Titus 3.7. Peter describes this inheritance in four ways. Look at verse 4 with me. Your inheritance is imperishable. This means it lasts forever. It is eternal. It can't be destroyed. It, It cannot be worn out. The New Testament only uses this word imperishable to describe heavenly things. What a contrast to our earthly inheritance that eventually needs repair or stops working or just runs out. As a child of God, one who is born again, your eternal hope never decays, never gets old, never runs out. Your inheritance is also undefiled, This means it remains pure and holy, unstained by sin. When you declare Jesus as your Lord and Savior, your eternal home is heaven that is free of any effects of sin. There is no pain, suffering, grief, deceit, regret, selfishness, mistreatment, or death in heaven. Your spiritual inheritance is pure, holy, and undefiled. Your inheritance is unfading. Your heavenly reward is brilliantly illuminated by the radiance of God's glory that never fades and never grows dim. You will never grow tired or bored. Your voice of worship will be in perfect pitch. Your resurrected body will never fade or diminish. And this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. It's kept in heaven. There is no way it will get lost or stolen. It is completely secure. 
And notice how Peter personalizes this. Up until this phrase in verse 4, Peter has used plural pronouns like we and our to describe the blessings God gives his children. But Peter pivots to the singular pronoun you as he finishes his description of your eternal inheritance. Salvation through Jesus Christ is personal. You are not born into the Christian faith. You aren't saved from sin because you have Christian parents. When you respond in faith, you become his child and are promised an eternal inheritance that is kept in heaven for you. This promised inheritance is our foundation for living expectant, hope-filled, worshipful lives. Now, it's hard for me to preach about this and not think of my mom. She's not been persecuted for her faith, but I can tell you she has suffered multiple health setbacks. My mom's knees and hips and shoulder have all been replaced. She has a steel rod in her femur. She's had spinal fusion. She's survived breast cancer. We like to joke that she's the bionic woman. She, she, she can't walk through, a, well, she can hardly walk now, but when she could, she couldn't walk through a metal detector without it just sounding alarms. And if that's not enough, she's got rheumatoid arthritis that causes chronic pain. And as, as, as many of you know, she is right now recovering from having a fractured femur. Uh, slow recovery, but noticeable recovery. We're thank, thankful for that. Why do I bring this up? In spite of all of her physical suffering, and I know many of you met her when, when they come to visit, I would describe her as expectant, hope-filled, and worshipful. Why is that? She looks past her physical setbacks. She looks past her health. And she looks forward to the heavenly inheritance that awaits her. And I know that because she talks about it all the time. There's an important lesson for us here. You see, there's a false teaching in our culture today that is often described as the prosperity gospel, that Christians are rewarded in this lifetime with health, wealth, and happiness. Friends, that is a far cry from what Scripture teaches. James writes that God has chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, James 2.5. Paul writes that though our outer self, that is our bodies, are wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, 2 Corinthians 4.16. Jesus himself said that in this world you will have tribulation, John 16.33. A theme Peter picks up in chapter 4 of this letter. In spite of hardship, suffering, even persecution, we live with hope and worship when we fix our eyes on our future eternal inheritance that God has promised to those who put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ. A third truth from this passage is found in verse 5. God guards us through faith. When you genuinely put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, God guards your faith so that you receive your heavenly inheritance. Due to the persecution his readers 
were facing. Peter may have anticipated their concern about remaining faithful to God. Would they have the strength to persevere even if faced with physical harm and death? Peter assures them that God, who caused them to be born again and who is keeping their eternal inheritance, is also guarding their faith to the end. Peter writes, You, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This Greek word translated as guarded was often used in military contexts. It means to carefully watch, to secure, and keep safe. Being guarded indicates it is an ongoing, perpetual activity of God. And Peter stresses this is by God's power. God is omnipotent. A fancy way of saying he is all-powerful. God has the power or the ability to do all that he wills. This includes guarding all who call he calls to faith in Christ so they remain faithful to the end. Jesus promised, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. John 6.40 And in John chapter 10, describing his followers as his sheep, Jesus promised, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. John 10, 27-29. Jesus will see to it that all who God gives him for salvation will persevere to the end and reach salvation which is our eternal inheritance, ready to be revealed in the last time. This is the work of our all-powerful God. It's not our work. This provides great assurance that when you genuinely commit to follow Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you will never perish. Your eternal life is secure. God's power works through the faith of those being guarded, not apart from it. Peter writes, You who by God's power are being guarded through faith, which echoes what we already referenced in Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This promise is an encouragement to any believer who worries they may fall away from faith in Christ. You are being guarded by our all-powerful God. He is greater than all and will not let anyone or anything keep you from your eternal inheritance. A common thread in each of these truths is that God is the one at work. He caused us to be born again to a living hope. He is keeping our eternal inheritance in heaven. He is guarding us through faith to the end. God is the giver, and we are the receiver. We are the benefactors of his great mercy. We were spiritually dead and he revived us, giving us new life and eternal hope. You might be here today and feel distant from God or lack a desire to worship him. I encourage you to meditate on this passage and these truths this week. 
You may have the equation backwards, thinking you chose God or your good works merit eternity in heaven and need this reminder, it is only because of God's great mercy that you are saved. When we give ourselves the credit, we minimize the work of God. How can that not naturally lead to a diminished desire to worship Him? But when we humbly accept that we were spiritually dead and God made us alive with Christ, then we have reason to praise and worship God even in the midst of suffering, hardship, and persecution. Perhaps you lack hope. Maybe things in your life seem to be going from bad to worse and there is nothing you can do about it. You may have even used the word hopeless to describe your situation or your outlook on life. That was likely the feeling the early Christians felt as they endured persecution because of their faith. If that describes you, you may have misplaced the object of your hope. I think even in Christian circles, we can place our hope in things that are good, finding the perfect spouse, having an ideal marriage, raising godly children. I think the past year has exposed how we can pin our hope to public policy and elected officials. We can even put our hope in our own Bible knowledge or the amount of time we serve at church. While these things are all good unto themselves, they will all fail us at some point because they are perishable and stained by sin. True living hope is not found in things of this world, but only in the work and promises of God. That is why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4.18, we look not to the things that are seen, things of this world, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. You may need to confess to God how you've misplaced your hope in things of this world and ask Him to help you set your hope fully on His grace. Our scripture memory passage that we we read or recited, fully on His grace and on His salvation through Jesus Christ. Before I close today, I want to address anyone here who is not born again to this living hope. God may be using these verses today as your spiritual wake-up call. I encourage you to find Pastor Steve and find me after the service or talk to your mom or your dad. We would love to share with you more about the living hope found in Jesus Christ. Peter was writing to a group of dispersed Christians facing persecution and suffering because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Knowing their discouragement, Peter reminded them of who God is, what he had done, what he was doing, and what he will do. He reminded them of their living hope, the eternal inheritance, and how the power and mercy of God saved them and was sustaining them. May these truths be an encouragement to you as well to live expectant, hope-filled, worshipful lives. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, how we desperately need to be reminded of who you are 
and the work you are doing. You and you alone are worthy of our praise. We thank you and praise you for your great mercy, your great power, your gift of salvation, and the promise of eternity with you. Help us to look to you and not things of this world for our hope. We ask this in your precious and holy name. Amen.